Oh, it's good to uh, see you all again and um, be opening the scriptures with you. And if we could open the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What we're going to have to do today is a little bit of a Bible study, so we're not going to read all the text at the beginning. You're going to read it as we go through. And um, we'll pick up right through. We're going to actually be looking at uh, verse 16 of chapter 11, and we're going to be going right through to the end of the chapter to verse 33. The title of my message is Paul's Credentials and Sacrifice on Display. Now, some of you may wonder why on earth I put all these pictures up there and uh, all the time, and, and, and the title. Actually, I'll put some time into this. It doesn't come right at the beginning. It sort of comes halfway through, and I change the picture. It helps me sort of cement what the big picture of the text is all about. So I put that picture up there. kind of helps me probably more than it helps you. And um, so just bear with me on that. But as we look into this text today, we need to understand that of all the positions that Paul found himself during his ministry, chapter 10 and halfway through to chapter 12, tell us of what was most distasteful to him. And that was blowing his own trumpet or waving his own flag or as we might say, doing some grandstanding. You're going to get the drift with all those expressions. You know, politicians are really good at this, aren't they? And it seems that the greater their grandstanding or boasting, the more effective they are at winning votes from naive people. We hear a lot of that from our politicians. Well, this is exactly what the false teachers were doing and had done and were practicing In the Corinthian church, in the assembly, they were boasting, they were grandstanding their human credentials. Those academic accolades, those degrees, and that oratory ability they had. They grandstanded them. They blew their own trumpet on these very things in order to win naive people. And it worked. Their boasting was actually very effective. Sad to say, it seduced gullible Christians away from the true gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. It seduced them away from that to a gospel of faith plus works. So Paul, being the true pastor, like any true pastor, elder, shepherd should be, he was concerned for these converts. Because after all, in the context of the Corinthians here, we go back to Acts 18, we'll see that Paul was called to go to Corinth. You read that all about that in Acts 18. And, and uh, Paul actually got a little bit disgruntled because there wasn't a response. But the Lord appeared to him in a vision and says, I have much people in this city. Close on two years later, he was still there. And he planted a church and he ministered and taught them the things of God. But some of these young converts were being seduced away by the deceitfulness and cunning of men who preached the false gospel. And so as a last resort, in order to defend his divine appointed apostleship, 
Paul, as we have discussed earlier, with heavenly, heavenly irony and sarcasm, he makes his point here. Okay? Even though the assembly at large had repented and returned to him, there were still a few recalcitrant people who were following and questioning Paul's apostleship and his authority to say the things that he did. And so Paul says this, and I'm going to paraphrase basically what he's on about here. He says this, Okay, if it's grandstanding that you are so impressed with, let me do a little bit of that myself. Because if it's human credentials that you think will get you some heavenly blessing, get a load of this. I've got some as well. And then he launches into giving his credentials as an apostle of God to remind these recalcitrant believers, these disciples, of who he was. He boasts, he grandstands himself in order to remind these people that he was God's appointed apostle sent to bring them the true gospel by which they were saved. But Paul hates what he has to do. He really does. He loathes having to resort to such foolish human methods. He despises the parading of his humanness and so we might ask a good question, well, why was that? Why did he despise that? Simply this, because Paul placed, placed a, a supreme priority on displaying Christ. That was his goal. That's what he longed to do. His whole ministry was built on the credentials and the person of Jesus Christ alone, never on himself. He knew that the moment anyone focused their attention on mere men, no matter how good or how well they spoke or how well they presented themselves or how well they dressed or how many degrees they had behind their name, he knew that as soon as anyone focused attention on mere men, Christ became a mere secondary addition. So the Apostle Paul, like John the Baptist too, by the way, preached and lived out this axiom. Christ must increase and the preacher must decrease. He lived that out. But that's how it should be for every believer, right? That's how it should be. But you know what? Too often it's the other way around. We want ourselves to increase in importance and prominence and esteem. We want ourselves to increase in people's approval. That is the case. Sad to say. I was reminded of this during the week by a, by a blog by Tim Chalice, which he posted. And you can see this very tree. Most of us go through life worrying people will think too little of us. But the Apostle Paul worried people would think too much of him. And how true this is. You see, underlying Paul's reluctance and abhorrence at, at parading himself in any way was that people might think too much of him. You know, Paul knew these people at Corinth. He knew their tendencies. He'd spent long enough to know who they were and what they were and also the, the, the man-centeredness of men generally. Remember way back in his first epistle? He broached this very subject. 
because it was a problem even then of men being drawn to others. There was a man-centeredness in their theology and they even boasted then, I have Paul, I have Peter, I have, I have Apollos and even some I have Christ in the fact that they were promoting themselves and not necessarily Christ. And so here in this section he reluctantly and ironically uses their man-centered weakness to affirm to them his true apostleship. That's what he does. As I was thinking about this, I decided, you know, it's, it's easy to be humble when we fail at something. After all, you make a mistake, the best way forward is to eat humble pie, right? And you get over it. People accept it a lot better. But it's something else to be humble when we are successful. And by God's grace, as we look at the Apostle Paul in his life, Paul's ministry to the Jew and to the Gentile can only be measure, measured at the very least as extremely successful. He was the church planter par excellence. As we look at the whole life of Apostle Paul. But throughout his life of service to the Lord, there was one overriding and undergirding characteristic. Paul was humble to the core. And here was a challenge that Paul now faced as we come into this text, as we've been also looking at. It was to remain humble as he presented his human credentials, his accomplishment, his trials, his experiences, both in and out of the body, by the way. We see this going right through to chapter 12 and verse 13. This was his challenge, to remain humble. So how would he do that? How would he remain humble when he presented all those things? Would his boasting be like all other boasting? And so from our text today, as we take in his apostolic credentials, can we say, I want you to take notice of several things. But the first thing I want you to take notice of was his humble boasting and the sacrifice he made. You got that? I want you to think about his humble boasting and the sacrifice he made. Because Paul in this is an example for us to follow. Because when we see Paul and when we see and what he boasts about and the sacrifice he made, we will see that when you really care about people, it will cost you something. You got that? Oh, you take that in as well. When you really care about people, it will cost you something. Some of us were talking in the theology class this morning of what the love of God looks like. And we looked at that great commandment where it says, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what love looks like, you take a look at how you view and how you respond to other people. Because if you really care about people, it will cost you something. It costs Christ something, right? That's what I want to see you to see in this passage because we see it shining through in Paul's life. Our first heading is the irony behind Paul's inspired boasting. And now I'm going to pick up the text and I want you to follow along and keep your finger in the page and because we're going to be looking at this. And we're going to commence at verse 16 and read through to verse 21. I've divided it up like this because it is a very difficult passage. One of the most difficult that I've come across as I've 
poured some time and energy into this this week and, and, and thinking about it, how would be the best way? And so one of the best ways, one of the ways was to read section by section. And we'll read it from verses 16 to 21. And this is what the Word of God says. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Okay, we'll stop right there. As we've already mentioned, Paul speaks here with heavy irony, inspired irony, I might say. And what he spells out clearly to these false teachers, he kind of says this, although I am sinking to your level of using foolish boasting to get my message across, do not think for one moment I am like you, or you are like me. You see, his approach was not prideful, boasting uh, and to deceive the people in order to command a following. It wasn't boasting like that. But his boasting, Paul's boasting, was, is, is going to be about the truth about himself for the gospel's sake. And this was very hard for Paul to do. He didn't want to promote himself in any way, shape, or form to get the gospel across. But here were these people that were calling to question his apostleship, his divine right, his divine authority to say the things and teach the things and to be the person he said he was. It was very hard for him. But just to make sure as readers that this is not what he really wants to do, he says something here. And remember this, I'm not following the Lord's example. Okay? That's what he says, I'm not following the Lord's example. Why is that? Because the Lord never boasted of himself. And this was very hard because the Apostle Paul wanted to be more and more like Jesus Christ. He was in the sanctification process just like you and I are. He wanted to be more and more like Christ. He wanted to honor Christ. He wanted in all ways to decrease in Christ's increase in his life and also in the life of his hearers and his disciples that that would be one to the Lord. And so Paul hated what he was having to do. But Paul says, if that's what it takes, if this is what it takes, let me boast a little. He says that in verse 16. Let me boast a little. In other words, let the flesh, let my boasting make its mark. Let your confidence in foolish boasting, have its way in you and listen to me. If you have so much confidence in foolish human boasting, listen to what I've got to say. If that's what it takes, let me do some grandstanding to you as well. You see, folks, Paul could see that these deceived people, they tolerated and loved their ears being tickled by these boasting, deceitful, false teachers because that's what had happened. That's what had happened. These recalcitrant believers in Corinth, they, they, they loved the style and, and, and the boastful accolades. 
so much. They loved it and they got used to it and they, and they were warmed by it. Their ears were tickled by it, their oratory ability, etc., etc. That they were deceived and before long in their ignorance they were captivated. They were enslaved by these ear-tickling messages. That's what happens, right? That's what happens. I've heard ear-tickling messages, motivational messages. Nothing of the Word of God, motivational messages. You know, hear people come out and say, oh, wasn't that a wonderful sermon? Oh, good motivational message, but nothing of the Word of God in it. Ear-tickling messages. And as a result, these people were entrapped. They were victims of spiritual abuse. This is what they were. As they tolerated these lies and the deceit and the exportation and the humiliation, they considered it normal. They considered it okay after a while. That's the aim of abuse, right? The victims usually end up thinking this is normal. They accept it. They stay in that state for years and years and years. This is what's happening in Corinth. So Paul responds with the heaviest of irony here. And he says this, if that's what true spiritual leadership is all about, if that's true apostleship, we certainly have been weak in comparison. That's in verse 21. You see that? In other words, if abusing, exploiting, dominating, and lording it over the people is the measure of a true leader, we are out of the contest, full stop. We cannot match that. We are weak in comparison. What irony here, Paul uses. But then Paul says something else. He's not finished yet. He's not finished. Verse 21, he says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking of as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. You see, Paul is ready to take them on blow for blow and matching their foolish boasting. But there was a major difference. There was a major difference. You see, the grandstanding of these false teachers was all about achievements and oratory skills, the success, the approvals, the accolades, and the academic degrees they held. That's what their boasting was in. Their boasting was self-centered, self-exalting, prideful human success stories. You know about these things. But Paul's boast was completely different. Completely different. You see, his foolishness, as he calls it in verse 21, is a boasting about his failures. Was boasting about his failures. Was boasting about his weakest and his most vulnerable moments and times of severe trial. Now, who on earth does that? Who boasts about such things? Would you do that? When we look at Paul's boasting, success and achievement are not on the menu. Surely you only brag about moments of triumph and success and things that make you look better in the eyes of people. Surely that's what you only exalt about, boast about. Well, not Paul. Not Paul. You see, his brag was about weakness and vulnerability and degradation and humiliation and, and, and all those kind of things that befell him. And so we can ask, well, why on earth would he do that? Why? 
Because in them and through them, Christ alone is exalted. That's the message. That's, that's the center of this whole thing here. This whole section. You see, what the false teachers considered to be pathetic and humiliating and something that should never be experienced as a true apostle of God exactly is, the, is what Paul put forward as his boasting material. You see, folks, Paul knew that when he was weak and vulnerable, that's when he was strong and powerful in the Lord's hands. We have that in the next chapter in verse 12, verse 9. He knew that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 and verse 27. So he was Paul wanting to break the spell this, that had been cast over them, this, uh, of deceit that had been cast over this church by these grandstanders. And, and he says, have a listen to what I have to say. I like how the message paraphrases this um, second half of verse 21. This is what the message, how the message records it. Since you admire the egomaniacs of the pulpit so much, remember this is your old friend, the fool, speaking. Let me try your hand at it. That's what he says. So what were the weak things that Paul was all set to boast about? brings us into our second point. The irony behind Paul's identity and suffering. Let's read this, verses 22 to 27. You following me on the scriptures? Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am also in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was, oh sorry, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Full stop. Paul, can I say, playing the devil's advocate, so to speak, reluctantly launches into this diatribe of grandstanding. So meeting the false teachers head on, he first confronts them with what they proudly used to wheedle their way in to the Corinthian assembly. They used and boasted about their genealogy. They loved to proudly spout off about their Jewish heritage and their ancestry. They bragged about this as if it set them above the Apostle Paul and above all others and particularly above the congregation in Corinth. They loved and bragged and had huge confidence in their human ancestry. This was an issue at Philippi, another church that Paul started as well. You know. Paul said to the believers there in chapter 3, for we are the circumcision. He's admitting and saying that we are Jews. Yes, we have Jewish heritage. 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he says further on, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Same issue going down there. You see, ancestry and lineage can be a big deal for people today. You know that? Just about every night on TV, you have adverts. Oh, find out who your roots are. You have sitcoms about people finding their roots, going back into the ancestry, and they uncover all sorts of skeletons and so forth. And people find great delight. And you know, you know why that is? You know why that is? Because God originally created man to belong. To belong to him. But the fallout of Adam's sin has pushed our, all our inbuilt sense of belonging to cry out to something, to someone. Maybe to a family, maybe to a club, maybe to a gang, maybe to a tribe, maybe to a country, to everywhere but God. That's where people, they long to belong. People need to belong. It's part of our DNA. Because that's how God made us. That's why God knew that. That's why He designed marriage. That's why He designed families. That's why He designed the local church. Because people need to belong. But it all goes wrong when our identity, our confidence in who we belong to for eternal blessing is substituted by anyone or anything other than faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Well, the false teachers had placed, they were placing a, a confidence in their lineage. Being a Hebrew and descendants of Abraham w- was all in all to them. But ironically, Paul had this as well. He had their pedigree just like, he had their pedigree just like they had. But he has something far more. He says this in verse 23, that he was a servant of Christ. He had something far more. Now you need to be aware of the satire here because although Paul infers the false teachers were servants of Christ here in this verse 23, they were not. Why is that? Because just going back to verse 15 of the same chapter, there he infers that they were not servants of Christ, they were servants of Satan. Verse 15 of chapter 11. Paul covers himself when he says this. He's just called the these false teachers servants of Satan and, and in real sarcasm here is big time. And, um, but he covers himself just to make sure they get the point. In the little parenthesis there, it says, I would have to be insane even to think or say so. That's what he says. Even though it may infer that they're servants of Christ, he covers himself. I would have to be insane to even think or say so. So it's sarcasm, satire going down here big time. But what does Paul do next in 23 to verse 27? He's just stated that he's a servant of Christ. Now what would you do? I'm a servant of Christ. He's substantiated everything. And now what is he going to do? What would you do? 
Well, can I suggest if Paul was at a modern-day missions conference and Paul was invited to take up the podium and to share something of his ministry, what would you expect to hear? Most of us would be waiting for the success stories, right? The preaching campaigns, the numbers who had gathered in this event and that program, etc., etc., the churches that were planted, the baptisms. You, you would expect to hear some name dropping here as the Apostle Paul. And you expect to hear that maybe the, the odd Roman senator or two who had come to know the Lord. Or the military commanders that he had, mission, that he had witnessed to and had the opportunity to witness Christ to. After all, these are the credentials that you would expect, wouldn't you? Do you know what? Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't go there. He could have. He could have, but he doesn't go there. He heads in a very different direction with his boasting. He turns the table on these ego-driven opponents by not boasting of success or triumph, but of times of weakness, vulnerability, and humiliation. That's what he does. He brags about the weakness and the physical suffering he endured sacrificially in the name and in the service of Jesus Christ his master and savior and all this physical violence and life-threatening disaster came upon him as an apostle simply why simply because he was a true servant of jesus christ he labored to the point of exhaustion he suffered imprisonments he was beaten with lashes and rods by both jews and the romans he was shipwrecked and he was left like with like a piece of debris floating on the sea he was again and again confronted with life-threatening dangers from robbers and swollen rivers and hostile Jews and Gentiles. Wherever he went, that's what it was like. He knew what hard labor was all about. He knew what it was like to get his hands dirty. He knew sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and cold through sheer exposure. He knew all that stuff. Wow, what a list. What a list. And we complain about jet lag as we hop from one country to another sitting in our plucky seat. You see, if we follow Paul's logic here, and I think we need to, it seems pretty clear that while defending himself, he also implies that his opponents were the exactly opposite. In other words, no way would they ever lower themselves to such degrading, humiliating and impoverished conditions. They were above that. No way would we ever put our lives on the line or ever take such risks or even dare to think to, to move out of our comfort zones. Not for anyone. You see, folks, Paul's boast made it clear that he was a marked man where both Jews and Gentiles wanted him dead. It reminds us of someone else, right? person of jesus christ it's a bit like the modern day christians in aleppo syria at the moment where over this last year or two many genuine christians have refused to announce their faith refused to turn their back and heart and soul on the savior they have loved and they've paid for it many of them being beheaded many of them have actually been crucified and suffered other severe degradation See, they were marked with the same mark that Paul was marked with. 
They loved and owed their all to Christ, even their lives. You see, Paul lived for Christ, not for himself. He was a true servant. He saw all these vagaries that happened to him. What does he call them in 2 Corinthians 4.17? As momentary light afflictions preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's why how he viewed them. How quick we say, woe is me. You see, Paul's love and service for Christ is seen in his love and sacrifice he made for people. Paul was convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing would be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul believed that. He taught it and he preached it and he lived it out. Do we? It's Romans 8, 38 and 39. Folks, are you marked with that kind of love for Christ in that you willingly sacrifice, serve and care for God's people? Come to our last point. We have the irony behind Paul's sympathy and humiliation. Let's read this together. Let me read it and you follow along. This takes us to the end of the chapter. Verse 28. Apart from, such, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of, of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Arras, the king was guarding the city of the, of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. As we look at this last little section, we've just come through a whole lot of physical suffering that we have seen Paul bore, but it was not what affected Paul the most. His greatest burden was an internal concern. You see that? He tags this as his concern for all the churches. You see, this internal hurt that he carried was so deep simply because of this, because he loved and identified with his spiritual children. If there were people struggling with weak faith, it bothered him deeply. He just didn't give them the flick. If people struggle with temptation and sin that drew them away from the Lord, the love of Christ that was in Paul didn't allow him just to step back and say, this is none of my business anymore. Paul was deeply and intensely, that's what the word here says there, intensely concerned about the people he loved. As I was thinking about this, I measured my own level of concern for the spiritual well-being of this church. And for those who struggle in their faith, and there are some, those who are struggling with their obedience to the Lord, and for those who, who seem oblivious to the call of the gospel in their lives. And folks, it is, it's a real pressure and a concern with me, and I know with the elders that we have here, it is a concern. And it weighs heavily upon us. 
Why? Because people's eternal destinies are at stake. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, wow, but this is only one church, a small church. Paul planted up to nine churches that we know of. And he experienced pressure and concern for them all. There was none of this kind of concern in the heart of the false teachers. None whatsoever. Paul's concern for the churches and for those who were spiritually weak and wayward was an intense concern. It wasn't just some passing thought. And so this validated his apostleship. Like it should, by the way, for any spiritual true spiritual leader perish the day that we have ever uh, uh, one of our leaders a spiritual leader that has no real genuine concern for the people of the church and their spiritual well-being folks what I want to point out here is that Paul burned with love and passion and concern for the churches including any who were led into sin you see if you really care about people if you really, really care about people, it will cost you something. It'll cost you something. It will, it will also mean at times being humiliated like Paul suffered as recorded in our, in our last three verses. It cost Paul heaps to care for people. I wonder how much it's costing us. And so as we look at the last three verses, we see, oh, wow, this like, looks like it shouldn't be there. It's almost out of place. After all, it's, a, it's, it's all about a, an escape story, and a daring escape story, isn't it? This is, where the, this is where, can we say, the good guy wins. But that's not how Paul saw this event in his life. That's not how Paul saw this event in his life at all. Paul looks back on this event as being one of the most humiliating turning points in his whole life. So now he reveals, can we say, the mother of all humiliations to him as his boast. And in order to make sure we know of its solemnity and its importance, what he does here is he affirms this important occasion with another oath. He's done this twice before in this chapter. He makes an oath and he uses the name's Lord, the, the name of the Lord, who knows he is not lying. See that? He strengthens and affirms this solemn and heavy occasion in his life. A monumental ministry failure. That's how he saw it. And he looks back and he boasts about this failure. Who does that? Paul did. You see, when Luke recorded this event in more detail, in its context, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, read it at your own leisure, what Luke does is he describes this event for the reader to see God's protecting hand on the progress and the growth of the church. Okay? That's how it's portrayed by Luke in the book of Acts. But now Paul gives us some inside information. He allows us to see from his personal perspective how this went down to him. And you'll remember the occasion, Acts chapter 9. 
Paul was converted. Remember, he was on the way to Damascus to gather up Christians, take them back to Jerusalem, and he was going to persecute them. No doubt some of them would even be killed. That's what he was going to do. But on the way, he, 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 was, he, was, he was converted. And in that conversion, he was temporarily blinded and, and he had to be led to Damascus. And there at Damascus, he met other disciples of Jesus. And so here was Paul, or Saul as he was known then. Saul is the Hebrew word. Paul is the, the Greek equivalent. So here was Saul, a brand new convert. He, he was a zealous young rabbi. And here he was, thoroughly born again and captivated by Christ. And he now is in Damascus. And it is possible there was a three years gap where he was out in the wilderness and he comes back to Damascus where, uh, he, got, where he first went. And um, the story picks up, and I want, you to re- I want to read this, in verse 19 of Acts chapter 9. Just listen to this. Now, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately, this is Paul, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is not this he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? The people were saying, isn't this the man who was killing Christians? Verse 22 says, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. What a man. What a man. A gospel preacher par excellence. He was taking the world by storm. But after many days, Paul's preaching and the Jews' hatred and anger set in at this man and they plotted to kill him. But the news traveled fast and Paul got wind of this and so an escape plan was hatched and you know the story. He was let down in a stinking old basket down the outside of the city walls and there he escaped. Now this is where the humiliation and shame make its, made its mark on the Apostle Paul. Now you've got to understand a little bit of on, on context and a little bit of history and what went down. You see, in these times if you were a Roman soldier you were awarded and rewarded greatly if you were the first one up over the wall when you were attacking a city. You got that? There was a special medal of honour for the first one who would breach and go over the wall in the face of the enemy. Well, Paul's point here is very clear. In the face of the enemy, he was the first one down the wall. He was the first one down the wall. And though this marked him as a failure, he was on the run. Paul set out for Damascus with a prideful intent of hunting down Christians. And he left the city not as the hunter, but the hunted Paul here reflected on his humiliation, the shame, the indignity and his weakness, his failure in ministry in the face of the enemy. You see, folks, Paul knew and understood that there was no room for prideful self-confidence in a true servant of God, no matter how powerful and convincing his preaching was. He learned that. He boasted in his human weakness as he states in chapter 12, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Time is gone. I want to recap just right now. What do we boast of? What do we boast about? Let's do some reflection here. Number one, 
if you really care about people, it will cost you something. Let's not stand so aloof that we never have the opportunity to get our hands dirty, so to speak. Because as Christians, we can do that. I don't want to get involved. I want to back off. I just want to do my own thing. And so we fail to get involved in people's lives. If we really care about people as we should as believers, it will cost us something. You got that? Number two, we should be ashamed if we boast of our abilities and achievements as if we deserved or earned them, no matter what abilities or achievements you have. After all, is not all that we have have been given to us by Christ? Whether it's your astute academia or whether it's your job or whether it's your whatever in life, your family, your, your ability to do this or that, whatever we have is given to us by Christ. First Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, let us willingly give and be used completely for God's glory. Because what we have is given to us by Christ. Number three, let us be quick to admit our weaknesses so to extols Christ. Rather than allow, because this is what happens, rather than allow pride to cover up our weaknesses as though we had none. We've all got weaknesses. And I think it's a good thing to admit our weaknesses so to extol Christ. Because otherwise, if we don't, we're putting out the message that we have no weaknesses and I'm a self-made man and I can do what I want to do, etc., etc., etc. No. We want to give all the glory to Christ. Number four, let us learn to assess our lives not as the world measures success, but like the apostle who followed the Lord's example of humility in both life and testimony. And 12 and verse 9 says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Don't we want that? Don't we want that as a church? Absolutely. May God bless us to do that. Shall we stand? I want to close with this benediction and, uh, and then we can be on our way. Let me pray first. Father in heaven, we do give thanks for your word. Thank you for this boasting of the Apostle Paul because it allowed us to have another view of his heart of selflessness. Selfishness wasn't on his agenda. He cared for people and was willing to pay the cost. Well, Father, may we follow his example. Help us to confess and admit that we have weaknesses. Help us not to cover them up as though we had none. And everything that we have, Father, help us understand that it's been given to by us so that we may willingly use it for your glory and honor. Help us with these things, we pray. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen.